baby steps or signs of real progress? Journalists at COP27 try to tell one from the other. With his network of news outlets and mercenaries, Putin's chef wields influence in Russia and beyond. Plus, when 280 characters just don't cut it, the tweets that attempt to tell the story of Elon Musk's Twitter takeover. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we provide explanatory journalism about journalism and the global news media. With world leaders gathered in Egypt this week and next for the latest UN climate summit, the agenda could not be clearer. Experts say that the policies governments put in place at last year's conference in Scotland will still leave large parts of our planet uninhabitable. The lack of progress has many questioning the COP process. Activists say it allows politicians and corporations to greenwash their records. On the flip side, UN negotiations and COP conferences are, by default, the best path forward to solve the existential challenge that climate change presents and to draw attention from news outlets often distracted by other issues, such as the war in Ukraine. At the heart of this year's summit, COP27, are questions of climate justice, like providing climate finance to poorer nations, a critical news angle that tends to get little attention in the Western media. Our starting point this week is Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. In opening the COP27 summit in Egypt, the UN's Secretary General was out to get the global media's attention. So Antonio Guterres stole a line from the world of pop culture to deliver a simple message about a complicated story. We are on a highway to climate hell with our foot still on the accelerator. Guterres knows news is a competitive business and climate change is battling against other stories for our attention. Cost of living crises, the pandemic, and the clear and present danger of the war in Ukraine. Stories that could and should be mentioned in the same breath as the changing climate. Climate change is a threat multiplier. When we talk about the war in Ukraine, we need to talk about how people are being impacted by the historical energy choices that Europe made, depending on Russian oil and gas. When we talk about the cost of living, climate change is putting a giant price tag on our food, on our resources, on building supplies, on our insurance rates. When we're talking about coronavirus, the air pollution from breathing fossil fuels and from wildfire smoke is making COVID worse. How the media tells a story, how the media connects people in that story is very, very important. This community is trying to come to terms with what happened. And what it did in Ukraine, it made people in Europe connect with the people of Ukraine. There are no legitimate targets in this country. It needs to do the same in the climate story. It's a real shame that this is diverting attention from climate change. Uh, the war in Ukraine might be a disaster right now, but climate change will be a much greater disaster for a much greater number of countries in the years to come. UN negotiations on the climate issue are ongoing. COP summits are just the most high-profile aspect of them, and they have credibility issues. 30 years into the process, the pledges and targets keep coming. But the only time emissions have actually gone down was during the worst days of the COVID pandemic. One thing that has gone up, the number of fossil fuel lobbyists attending this COP. 
by 25%. 636 of them are in Sharm el-Sheikh. Then there's the issue of corporate greenwashing, which activists like Greta Thunberg say turns summits like this one into a scam. The Egyptian government's choice of corporate sponsors includes one of the world's top plastic polluters, Coca-Cola, and automobile manufacturer, General Motors. The biggest polluters of the planet are funding what is supposed to be a summit to protect the planet. It's almost uh, like a tragic comedy. So the optics look good for the company, but they definitely don't look good for the UN, which is holding these summits. It's not the UN itself uh, that is engaging in this corporate sponsorship exercise. This is very much something uh, that's been taken on board by the host government, in this case Egypt. COPs over the years have expanded because civil society, because business groups all want to get involved. Egypt is a developing country which doesn't necessarily have the resources to accommodate all these extra stakeholders who want to be there to make their voice heard. One also has to take into account the importance of engaging with industry. We really cannot solve climate change if we simply try and pretend the big business just isn't there. And that's not just simply about the corporate giants who sponsor the climate negotiations. People would be shocked that many of the fossil fuel industries, that the ones who are responsible for causing this crisis, are there and not just lobbying in the shadows, but are sitting and meeting with governments, giving high priority access, help shape policies and texts that are being negotiated. And they propose solutions, many of them false solutions. Here are two terms news consumers should familiarize themselves with. Climate finance and loss and damage. Both are high on the COP agenda. Climate finance refers to the responsibility that rich countries have, since they've done most of the polluting to help developing countries with the cost of decarbonizing their economies and to prepare for and manage the impact of climate change. Loss and damage is a subcategory of climate finance designed to deal with the damage already done. To countries like Pakistan, one-third of which was underwater earlier this year, its government needs economic help to deal with floods and other new environmental threats to its people. For the lost and the damaged of the world, such gatherings are the only hope. Climate finance has been discussed at previous COPs, but this is the first time that loss and damage has been on the table. Some analysts call that a milestone, potentially, for the developing world. The poor countries of the world are saying that they are not responsible for the historical emissions. So when we say that the rich countries need to pay money to the developing world, is this going to be in terms of aid? Is it going to be in terms of loan? In the past, a pledge was made that 100 billion US dollars would be made available. How much progress has been made on that? We've had at Glasgow the countries admitting that uh, not much money has been put on the table. And so the term that you might hear is climate finance, which is the idea of providing assistance to countries who need to adapt very quickly, who also need to continue to build their economies, but doing so they requires energy, but allowing them to do so and to develop in a safe way that is resilient to the impacts of a changing climate they require investment. And many would say, myself included, 
that it's only fair that that investment come from those who have caused the problem that is impacting them today. Among the climate mega-disasters of 2022, floods in China, Australia, and Nigeria, droughts affecting Ethiopia, Kenya, putting half the population of Somalia at risk of famine, windstorms and heat waves in Western Europe, and Hurricane Ian, which tore through Cuba before slamming into the southeastern U.S. Too many climate-driven disasters to list here some of which never made it to your news feeds, the way the Ukraine and cost of living stories did. Even less likely to attract news coverage, some of the headway being made technologically. It's not all doom and gloom. We are seeing progress. It's now cheaper to install solar or wind in most parts of the world than it is to set up a new fossil fuel power station. Emissions in most of the richer world are already on a slow downward trend and this is at least partly to do with the UN efforts. So certainly there hasn't been enough action but we cannot just dismiss all these efforts that have taken place. It might be very messy but it does move forwards. The media has a very critical role to play. Because if it doesn't explain the climate crisis properly, the finance that is needed for developing countries to be able to grow cleanly, then what rich happens is rich countries say, we don't have a mandate from our citizens to do these things. And that's because their citizens haven't been told the truth. Our media hasn't told them the story, hasn't put pressure on leaders in their own countries and saying, why is it that climate finance is talked about as if it's a charity rather than actually our legal and moral responsibility? We often think of climate change as a separate topic or a separate bucket. And we only have so much space on our front page or we only have so much time or attention to put into each bucket. But I would argue that climate change takes issues like the cost of living, political instability, refugee crises, even issues like global pandemics, and exacerbates them or makes them worse. Climate change is an everything issue, and I would love to see climate change mentioned in every topic that the media reports on, because there is no aspect of our lives today that is not already being affected by a changing climate. Staying with COP27, Egypt and the case of activist Ala Abdel Fattah, whose imprisonment has threatened to overshadow proceedings for the host country. Tarek Nafa has the details. Richard, COP27 offered the Egyptian government an opportunity to polish its international reputation, but it clearly hadn't bargained for the sustained media interest in Ala Abdel Fattah, a writer and activist who has spent most of the last decade in jail. Abdel Fattah's sister, Sanat Saif, has been at COP27, doing the kind of advocacy that is only possible in Egypt when there is a safe space managed by the UN. He's not in prison for the Facebook post they charged him with. He's in prison because he's someone who makes people believe the world can be a better place. The Egyptian authorities have been unable to stop rights groups and activists calling out the country's human rights record, including the fact that tens of thousands of political prisoners are behind bars. That led to moments like this, where Saif was interrupted by an Egyptian member of parliament. Saif 
Amrut Arwish gave delegates a glimpse of the everyday intimidation experienced by Egyptians. He was later escorted out by security. Don't touch me. I am the Egyptian parliament. No, 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 you are here in the Egyptian land. You are here in the Egyptian land. Don't touch me. After Ala Abdel Fattah escalated his hunger strike, refusing water last week, rights groups pushed world leaders to press for his release at COP27. Prior to the conference, the Egyptian government released more than 750 political prisoners, but according to Amnesty International, over the same period, it arrested twice as many. Since President Sisi took power in 2013, the authorities have taken over most of Egypt's print and broadcast media. Independent news outlets like Mother Masr remain blocked, which explains why, outside of the conference, news of the descent there is hard to find. Thanks, Tarek. To Moscow now, and Yevgeny Prigozhin, the oligarch they call Putin's chef. He got that title after whining and dining the Russian president, later winning big government catering contracts. Prigozhin is best known as the man behind Wagner, a private military company, notorious for doing the Kremlin's bidding overseas. He's also the creator of a media network which has produced propaganda and misinformation in Russia and abroad. For years, Prigozhin hid his links to Wagner. He remained in the shadows of Russian politics. That changed with the invasion of Ukraine. Prigozhin's come out of the closet. He now boasts about the role that his mercenaries are playing there. Much of what we know about him is down to the work of investigative journalists who Prigozhin has pursued repeatedly in the courts for exposing his activities. We spoke with one of those journalists, Ilya Barabanov, about the man he has reported on for many years now, Yevgeny Prigozhin. Не имеющий никакого формального статуса в российской государственной власти, но де-факто обладающий большим влиянием, чем многие федеральные министры, а может быть даже и вице-премьеры. Пригожин берет на себя ответственность как на одного из главных пропагандистов. И понятно, что сейчас он кровно заинтересован в том, чтобы эта война не была проиграна России, потому что поражение России в этой войне станет концом и для Евгения Викторовича Пригожина. Меня зовут Илья Барабанов. Про Евгения Пригожина, его бизнес и ЧВК «Вагнер», который он создал, я пишу последние 8 лет. Биография Евгения Пригожина – это довольно стандартная биография петербургского бандита, который сумел из самых низов подняться до вершин государственной власти. Он воровал все подряд, начиная от меховых шапок и каких-то зимних шуб до магнитофонов и мелких ценностей. Обычный жулик, который получил несколько судимостей, но вместе с ними получил и весьма пригодившиеся ему в будущем полезные знакомства. Потому что криминал в 90-х в России, в Санкт-Петербурге в частности, очень много где шел рядом с властью. Тогда же, очевидно, произошло и знакомство Пригожина с будущего российским лидером Владимиром Путиным. Впервые их вместе широкая публика могла наблюдать в 2001 году, когда Владимир Путин в одном из пригожинских ресторанов принимал президента Франции Жака Ширака. 
Очевидно, что уже в тот момент перед Владимиром Путиным, так что в дальнейшем его бизнес-империя только продолжала расти. В 2012 году, понимая важность того, как защищать выстраиваемую им бизнес-империю, Пригожин начинает заниматься медиа. А уже в 2014 году впервые, впервые широкая публика узнала о существовании ЧВК Вагнера. Десятки, если не сотни э, фейковых аккаунтов создавались его фабрикой троллей для работы в, в социальных сетях. Эти люди продвигали в Facebook, Twitter э, и на других массовых площадках нужные ему тезисы. Они атаковали сайты крупнейших западных СМИ, спамя в комментарии. Они абсолютно не отражают настроение в западных обществах. Но Таким образом, Евгений Пригожин создает фейковую альтернативную реальность, а затем все это кладется в папочки и отправляется на стол Владимиру Путину. Таким образом, Евгений Пригожин доказывает свою, свою эффективность. захватили боевики, а сегодня ее освободила сирийская арабская армия. Он создал целую команду из политтехнологов и журналистов, которые путешествуют по разным странам, нужным образом для Пригожина, освещая происходящие те события. При этом это очень многоплановая работа. Например, в Центральной Африке он даже создавал собственную радиостанцию, чтобы влиять на настроение местного населения. В Ливии, когда там шла предвыборная кампания, Пригожин очень активно работал с местными информационными агентствами, с местными блогерами и пытался через социальные сети манипулировать настроениями электората. Он пытается еще и героизировать свою деятельность. Созданная специально киностудия снимает уже пятый или шестой фильм о том, как благородно российские наемники борются со злом в разных странах мира. Работаем. Очень долгое время Евгений Пригожин отрицал свою связь с ЧВК Вагнера. 
Он судился с российскими оппозиционерами, которые обвиняли его в том, что он владеет этой частной военной компанией. Судился с журналистами и СМИ, которые делали расследование на эту тему. Схема была отработана и довольно эффективной. Выигрывал эти иски, так что люди обязаны были ему либо платить, либо покидать территорию России. В условиях скрывать свою связь с ЧВК Пригожину уже не имеет никакого смысла. Наоборот, чем больше он заявляет о том, что это именно он ведет наступательные операции на востоке Украины, тем больше он привязывает свою фигуру к фигуре Владимира Путина. как Пригожин открыто заявил о том, что за ЧВК «Вагнер» стоит именно он, все его судебные претензии к журналистам и изданиям, которые писали об этом, стали, очевидно, логически абсолютно бессмысленными. Сейчас Евгений Пригожин, как он сам об этом открыто говорит, решает одну задачу – победить в войне. И чтобы выполнить эту задачу, он готов пойти абсолютно на все что угодно. Последние годы в России удивительным образом расцвел новый медиарынок медиарынок так называемых телеграм-каналов. И вот здесь пригожинские специалисты нашли себя. Они начали создавать огромное количество э, каналов, э, которые транслировали фейки, транслировали кремлевскую пропаганду. После начала российского вторжения в Украину мы понимаем, что Евгений Пригожин получил от Владимира Путина широчайший карт-бланш. Он позволяет себе в открытую критиковать министра обороны, командующего генеральным штабом, и, очевидно, строит планы на большое политическое будущее после войны, если, конечно, для России она обернется успехом. Если Россия проиграет эту войну, то предсказать будущее ни Владимира Путина, ни Евгения Пригожина абсолютно невозможно. Finally, Twitter has Musk and his lax approach to content moderation, which he says is all about freedom of speech, 
has led to an increase in hate speech and unhinged tweets of all kinds. And for a guy who likes to joke around on Twitter, presenting himself as some sort of edgy capitalist, Elon Musk has decreed that any account impersonating someone else that does not flag itself as a parody will be suspended. How is that funny? We've put together a series of tweets that amount to some poor reviews for Twitter's new owner. We'll see you next time here at The Listening Post.